Uh, please open your Bibles uh, to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. Our uh, passage for this morning is uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8. The title of our current series is Christ in the World. And as the title indicates, the purpose of this series in 1 Corinthians is to explore how we as Christians, uh, we as representatives of Christ, are supposed to interact with the world. Uh, that's an issue that the Corinthians apparently struggled with. It's an issue I think that many Christians struggle with. Uh, we understand that we're not supposed to be isolated from the world. We understand that we're supposed to be engaging the world with the gospel in some way, uh, but of course we wonder where's the line. I know I'm supposed to be in the world without being of the world, but what does that look like practically? We wonder how close am I supposed to get to the world, so to speak, before I've gone too far? Just what does this buffer zone between us and the world really look like? Whenever this topic comes up, one of the questions that inevitably arises is, uh, what is the Christian's relationship to the government? To what degree are we supposed to be involved in, uh, engaged with our government? There are a couple of different angles from which we can and should approach this issue. For example, uh, we may wonder to what degree are we supposed to influence the government? Paul says in Romans 13 that every governing authority has been appointed by God uh, for the punishment of evil. And at least one implication of this thought is that the government really should reflect the will of God in the laws that it establishes to govern its people. The church presumably has the information that is relevant to that purpose, to that role. We not only have the Word of God, but we have the Spirit of God, who we saw in chapter 2, discloses to us the things of God meaning we really should be in a position to tell the government this is the will of God. This is what justice looks like and why. This is how God wants you to rule on His behalf. So to what degree should we be active politically? To what degree should we be seeking to inform the government regarding the proper exercise of the authority that it's received from God? Uh, for example, uh, for Christians, living in a democratic republic such as ours? Uh, should they be actively advocating uh, for any specific political positions? Should they be attempting to persuade the public to adopt certain policies? Uh, should they perhaps even attempt to become a part of the government? Should they be running for political office? Or if the government fails to fulfill its role, should they be willing to pursue litigation against the state? Essentially, supposing they can't convince the public, should they take it to the courts and make their appeal there? Just to what degree are we supposed to exercise our influence on the government? This is one question that we can wrestle with. Another is, to what degree is the government supposed to influence us? This is really the question that Paul was trying to address when he wrote Romans 13. He didn't pen those words in order to tell the government to be in subjection to us, to the church, to Christians. No, he wrote them in order to encourage Christians to be in subjection to the government. He says, verses 1 and 2, Let every person be subject 
to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. The idea is that since the government has been instituted by God, then we as Christians need to be in subjection to it. We need to allow it to rule over us. This raises a whole other set of questions. For example, suppose the government isn't doing its job. Suppose it isn't fulfilling its God-intended role, and it ends up treating us unjustly. Do we still submit to it? Do we still allow it to rule over us, or do we rebel? What about when it's not treating us unjustly, uh, but even commanding us to disobey God? What then? Basically, just how far... Uh, does this influence extend? At what point do we say to the government, no, we will not be in subjection to you? Later this week, we'll celebrate Independence Day. And of course, on Independence Day, we celebrate our freedom as a nation. But I think, as you all know, freedom does not necessarily mean the absence of law. You look at some of the protests that have recently taken place across our country, for instance, and the anarchy that has tended to spring up in the wake of some of these protests, and that's not what freedom looks like. In fact, if you're anything like me, then you've been a little upset as you've seen some of these rioters destroy public property, you know, tear down statues and the like, because all this is, is a different kind of tyranny, and that's the tyranny of the mob. These protesters do not represent the will of the people. They have not been given authority by the people to take those actions. They're simply acting on the basis of their own authority, enforcing their will unilaterally. That's not freedom. That's tyranny. Freedom doesn't mean the absence of law. It means the freedom to self-govern. It's the freedom of self-rule. Meaning when a nation becomes independent, when they become free, They do not become free in the sense that they live without laws, but rather they gain the ability to govern themselves under their own system of laws. That's what we celebrate on Independence Day. We remember when we as a nation gain the authority to establish our own system of laws instead of being forced to live under a system of laws in which we had no say. We remember how we became free in this sense. Well, in what sense is the church free in this way? To what degree do we live under the rule of our national government? And to what degree do we function under our own set of laws? That's a question that Paul is going to help answer for us now as we move into 1 Corinthians chapter 6. To what degree does being in the world mean that we're subject to the laws of our government? And to what degree does not being of the world mean that we live independently of these laws. That's the issue we're going to tackle together this morning, and we're going to do it from what we discover here in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8. Let's go ahead and read the passage together in its context, starting in chapter 5, verse 9, and then continuing all the way down to chapter 6, verse 11. Uh, Paul has just finished rebuking the church for failing to separate itself from a man who is engaged in a known, ongoing, unrepentant sin, And now he says this. 
I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. <laughs> or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul writes 1 Corinthians in response to two separate types of questions. Uh, the first has to do with a set of questions that have been proposed by the Corinthians. Uh, that really seems to be the impetus for this letter. Paul has returned to the region for the first time since he founded the Corinthian church. And in the interim, some questions have come up in Corinth about how to live out their faith. And so uh, hearing that Paul has come back into the area, the Corinthians have written to him to ask him to resolve uh, some of these questions that they have. The second type has less to do with the questions the Corinthians want resolved and more to do with questions that they think they've already answered but which they've answered wrongly. We encountered this as early as chapter 1. Paul gets this report from Chloe's people that there are these factions that have developed in Corinth in his absence, and Paul realizes, before I can answer their questions, I need to address this. That's not an issue that the Corinthians have asked Paul to settle, but Paul realizes he needs to address it anyways. What we're seeing here in chapter 6 uh, falls into this second category. Paul has just spent some time uh, addressing the Corinthians' willingness to remain in fellowship with a man who is engaged in serious, ongoing, unrepentant sin, which was another issue that they actually hadn't asked his opinion on, by the way. Uh, they considered that matter settled. They were just fine remaining in fellowship with this man. Uh, Paul tells them, no, no, no. Uh, you need to kick this man out of the church. And as he explains why he says this and addresses some of the various implications of this thought, he concludes, chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. As you all know by now, Paul uh, says this in response to an objection 
that the Corinthians have made uh, to some counsel that Paul has provided in a previous letter. Uh, Paul has written to them, uh, telling them not to associate with sexually immoral people. Uh, the Corinthians apparently took this to mean that Paul didn't intend for them to associate with anyone guilty of sexual immorality, which not only violates our mission as Christians, but which is also incredibly impractical, right? Uh, you'd have to basically leave the world in order to achieve that kind of a standard. And so Paul answers this objection by saying, no, listen, you misunderstood me. Uh, I didn't mean every sexually immoral person when I wrote that. I just meant those who go by the name brother. And then he explains, again, 1 Corinthians 5, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Uh, the point is that they're supposed to deal with sin inside the church, not outside of it. That's the extent of their responsibility, the extent of their jurisdiction, so to speak. They're joined to their brothers and sisters in a way that they're not joined with unbelievers, and this makes them responsible to take action on sins inside the church, not sins outside of it. This thought of judgment or jurisdiction, so to speak, then leads Paul into another issue that's apparently taking place in Corinth, and that's lawsuits. It would appear that at least two, maybe more, of their members are engaged in some kind of dispute. Now, just what sort of dispute here isn't entirely clear, but is apparently serious enough uh, that the courts are willing to get involved. So we're not just talking about mere interpersonal or even theological differences. You know, these aren't just two brothers arguing about how one of them spoke to the other one or something like that. No, there's been some kind of tangible harm done by one brother against another, or at least so it's claimed. And rather than resolving this matter among themselves, they've decided to go to court over it. So given the time and place, we're probably talking about some kind of financial dispute. I think of the book of James, for instance, where you see these disputes breaking out between Christian landowners and their employees, uh, where the landowners had apparently promised to pay their brothers some type of set wage for their labor only to make payment conditional on earning a profit after the fact. These poor brothers are taking their richer brothers to court, claiming fraud, while the richer brothers are attempting to defend their actions. They're saying, hey, listen, this is just how business works. I know what we agreed to, but you can't reasonably expect me to take a loss on this. So maybe it's like that. Maybe there's some kind of dispute over wages going on here. Maybe it's a failed business venture. Perhaps it's even as extreme as one believer suffering some kind of real physical injury at the hands of another for whatever reason, and, and the injured brother is seeking some kind of financial compensation for the resulting disability. I mean, really, it could run the gamut. Point is, this is what we would call a civil case. It's a type of dispute where one party is seeking some kind of compensation from another, and the matter is serious enough that not only are they suing the, in, uh, one another in order to ask the government to use the power of the sword to enforce a judgment, but the courts are agreeing to do it. 
So again, these are apparently some pretty serious grievances we're talking about here. And I do want to point that out. I want you to note this so you understand the weight of Paul's response here. We're not talking about one church member being offended by another church member. Just some simple offense and then getting in a huff about it. No, we're talking about instances where one church member has inflicted some kind of real injury on another, be it physical or financial or otherwise, but it's serious enough that the government is willing to step in, render a judgment on the matter, and then even enforce it with the use of the sword if necessary. What should the Christian do in that circumstance? What does engagement with the world look like then? Is that what Christian submission to government looks like? Does it mean that we should seek the government's involvement in our civil disputes? Should we ask them to come in and not only render a verdict, but enforce it for us? It's clear what the Corinthians believed. They believed the answer to this question was yes. Yes, we should allow the government to exercise this kind of influence over us. But what does Paul say? I don't even think you need me to tell you, right? It's plainly evident from the text. His answer is no. Absolutely not. He says, you need to settle these matters in-house. You need to make every effort to resolve these grievances yourselves. This is what engagement with the world looks like to Paul. Yes, generally speaking, the Christian does uh, submit to the state's authority, when it, submits, when it asserts that authority, meaning when it compels the Christian to submit to this authority. But outside of that, meaning outside of those instances where the state compels us to submit to its authority, we need to make every effort to govern ourselves. I say this with one exception. There is one instance where I would say that we need to keep in mind as we talk about this. And that's when the offense committed within the church, okay, reaches the level of a crime. We've been talking about this lately in Sunday school, so if you want to know the full explanation of what I mean here or why I say it, you can look at those lessons uh, online, look them up, hear them there, at, and hear me explain this at length. But suffice to say for the moment, the Scripture tells us that God has given the state the authority of the sword, whereas the church possesses the authority of the keys, meaning the church has the authority to describe what is normative Christian behavior and to even include or exclude members based on that standard of conduct. What it cannot do is punish, and I think it's fair to say as well, even pardon criminal cases. That power belongs to the state and to the state alone. I take the time to say this because in the recent past, there have been several churches uh, that have gotten themselves in trouble because one member actually committed a crime against another member of the church or even against a member of the community. You know, things like sexual abuse and the like. And these churches tried to settle these matters in-house. You know, they asked the one party to confess, repent, and ask the other party for forgiveness and all of that. And then they tried to consider the matter closed or to sweep it under the rug. Listen, it doesn't work like that. The church doesn't have the authority to try criminal cases in-house. That authority belongs to the state. So if a crime has been committed, it needs to be dealt with 
by the proper authorities so justice and discipline can be administered in due time by the proper authorities. Meaning if someone needs to go to jail for what they've done, then the church needs to let the state operate and put that person in jail. The church has the authority to decide if the member is forgiven based off of their repentance. And if they even want to retain them as a member, perhaps while they're in jail, but they do not have the authority to tell the offended party in these situations, don't go to the authorities with this. We need to settle this in-house. Which is unfortunately what some churches have done. No, once a crime has been committed, it's no longer simply a church issue. It's now a state issue. The matter now falls under the state's jurisdiction. I want to make this point just crystal clear as we move here. We're not talking about criminal cases. But, outside of that exception, if the issue has not yet crossed over into criminal offense, meaning if it has not, under God's administration, automatically transferred into the state's jurisdiction, then we should not seek to place ourselves under the state's authority and have them resolve our disputes for us. Instead, we're supposed to handle the matter internally. I want you to grasp the seriousness of what Paul is indicating here. You take something as common, but as serious as divorce. And with this passage, Paul is saying that if one believer is seeking to divorce another, not only should the church weigh in and decide for those believers whether or not the divorce is even permissible. But then, supposing it is, he's saying that if the two individuals involved can't resolve how to divide their assets on their own, then they should seek the church's intervention on the matter, not a judge's. Of course, I don't think this is to say that this means that the two parties involved can't set you know, create an actual legal document and get that drawn up and to sort of codify and record the arrangement. But the idea is that the church should mediate the dispute, not a secular judge. Think about that. That's pretty serious, isn't it? But friends, that's what this passage says. There's no two ways about it. And listen, I know how extreme this sounds. I know how strange this sounds. Culturally, this idea is absolutely absurd. And to some degree, for reasons that I'm going to get into in a moment, there's good reason why we would think this is absurd. There are probably some legitimate objections to this notion that I'm going to get into in a moment. But for right now, I just want you to recognize that this is what the passage says. And I would ask you at this point, are you going to listen? Are you going to heed Paul's counsel on this issue or not? You see, in just a moment, we'll dive into Paul's reasoning for this conclusion. And once we do that, I'll I'll explain why this is actually the right course of action for the church in these scenarios. And my hope is that after you see the reasoning behind this decision, it's not going to seem uh, really so strange. You'll actually agree with Paul. This will all make sense. But I also understand that it's more than possible that some of you may want to check out in the message right here at this point. You want to say that's weird 
and not even give Paul the time to get to explain why he says this. If that's you, then before we jump into that, I want you to do a heart check and ask yourself, am I willing to submit to the apostles' instruction? Do I respect them enough, trust them enough to listen to them even when I don't entirely understand it? Listen, guys, I warned you back in chapter 4. Paul was going to say some things in this letter that seem strange. He's going to say some things that don't fit our cultural expectations for how we think things ought to be done. It seems strange to the Corinthians. We can expect it's going to seem strange to us as well. This is why Paul had to tell the Corinthians, listen, you need to remember, right? He said, I'm your dad. You imitate my example, not what other people are telling you. And I told you then, he's our father too. All of the apostles function, in a sense, as our spiritual fathers. And this means that when we hit these parts that are strange and challenging, we need to do our best to respect what the apostles have to say and submit to their authority. We can't just write this off as some cultural anomaly, which I think is probably what most Christians are tempted to do at this point, once they've encountered uh, something that is both personally and culturally challenging. They want to say, well, this was for then, not for now. You know, we can't expect Paul to understand how these passages would have been interpreted in light of such modern dilemmas as divorce, because if so, he certainly wouldn't have said it this way. No, Paul said in chapter 4, verse 17, that he sent Timothy to Corinth to remind the Corinthians of his ways in Christ, quote, as I teach them everywhere in every church. These are universal principles that we're talking about in this passage. So you have to decide right now who you're going to listen to, whose example you're going to be conformed to. Is it going to be the world? Basically, is it cultural approval? What you're going to follow, is that your standard for right and wrong? And are you going to make the Scripture submit to that judgment? Or is it the apostles? I would hope, of course, that it's the apostles. And if it's not, then I encourage you to go back and listen to that series of messages I entitled, What We Are Sons, because I think it might help you gain the proper perspective as to why you should conform to the apostles' example over and above the pattern set out for you by the world. Now, that being said, let's go ahead and get into these reasons that I just mentioned. This is, of course, a very serious concept that we're talking about here, and like I said, there are probably even some legitimate objections to this idea. So why does Paul say this? Why would he conclude that the church should make every effort to settle their civil disputes in-house? Ultimately, he gives us three reasons. And this week I even worked hard uh, to make sure that these statements are uh, reasons are stated with uh, three parallel statements, all of which alliterate quite nicely, so, uh, so it's easy to follow along. Uh, the first reason is this. Uh, because the church is called to settle these disputes. Paul expects the Corinthians to handle these matters internally because the church is called to settle these disputes. This point comes out in verses 1 through 4. Paul says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you 
incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? You know, doctrine has become a dirty word in the mind of many Christians. Uh, for them, the study of doctrine not only tends to divide the church, but quite frankly, they think it's meaningless. It's pointless. You try to talk about matters of eschatology, for instance, of uh, what will happen at the end of the age, and people will answer, you know, why spend all your time fussing over that? Won't we find out how it all ends when we get there? Why waste our time talking about that today? Give me something practical. Give me something that affects the way I live today. I tell you, the Apostle Paul didn't have this attitude towards doctrine. Not only did he see it as something that actually unifies the church, but he saw it as immensely practical, even something as seemingly obscure as eschatology, the study of the end times. And the reason why Paul saw something as something practical is because for Paul, not only what we are, but even what we will be should shape the way we live right now. If I could put it this way, God's imperatives are shaped by our identity, or you could say our prescriptions are determined by our descriptions. What we are defines what we do. And this means that something as seemingly obscure as eschatology becomes immensely, immensely practical. That's what you see emerge in this passage. The Corinthians are taking these grievances before civil magistrates, and Paul's reply is to say, wait a second, don't you realize what's going to happen at the end of the age? That is what shapes his understanding of how the Christian is to handle grievances in the church. It's his eschatology. Of course, what he observes is that believers will one day judge the world, that they will one day judge even the angels themselves. That's sort of a mind-blowing concept to consider. I actually preached on this topic just a little over a year ago. Uh, you go to John 14, and as Jesus prepares for his death, he tells the disciples, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I'm going to the Father. We hear that statement, and I think when we hear that word works, we're inclined to think that Jesus is talking about miracles, that his disciples would perform a greater set of miracles than Jesus. But then you think about some of the miracles that Jesus performed, and you think, how is that even possible? I mean, you know, Jesus raised the dead. How are any of his disciples going to do anything greater than that? And the answer is that Jesus didn't actually mean miracles when he said that. We actually learn earlier in this gospel what Jesus meant when he said this in John 5. In John 5, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. He's accused of breaking the Sabbath, of working on the Sabbath. And Jesus defends himself by saying, My father is working until now, and I am working. And then he continues. John 5, 29 through, or 19 through 23. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, 
so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Basically, Jesus says, not only do I too work on Sabbath, because as the Son I do everything my Father does, but the Father also wants you to honor me as His Son, and so He gives me the authority to do everything that He does so that you may honor me as His Son. Not only does that authority include doing things like not just healing, but healing on the Sabbath specifically, so that those observing that healing may recognize that as God, Jesus works on the Sabbath in the same way that God does. But Jesus says He will perform works greater than these as well. And what are those greater works? It's not just the power to raise the dead in context, but also the power to judge the earth. The Father wants the world to honor His Son, and so what does He do? He places Him in the position of ultimate authority over the earth. He functions as the very representative of the Father on the earth as He judges the earth. So then, what does Jesus mean later on when He says to the disciples, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. He's saying that they will participate with him in the judgment of the earth. He flat out tells Peter this in Matthew 19, doesn't he? Right after the incident with the rich young ruler, Peter wants to know, you know, what's in it for us? He says, we've left everything to follow you, so what are we going to get out of this? And in the first part of Jesus' answer, he says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That seems to be a promise for the apostles specifically, but He indicates that they will sit in judgment over the nation of Israel. And why will Jesus give His disciples this authority? Again, I think you find the answer back in John 5. Just as the Father gives the Son this authority, so that all might honor the Son as they honor the Father, so also does Jesus give His disciples this authority, so they might share in His honor. Now, to be clear, I don't think this is about us being praised like the Son. Rather, if you can think about it like this, just as the Father gives the Son this authority, because the Son obeys the Father in everything, meaning that as the Son is glorified, it actually points back to the greatness of the Father, since the Son serves the Father in all things. And you could say, you know, the Father honors His name through the exaltation of the Son. So also will the church's exaltation point back to the greatness of Christ. Case in point, think of what it would be like to stand before an angel an angel who rebelled against God and then declare to that angel guilty. How do you think you would feel in that moment? How do you think the angel would feel in that moment? I would think that he would think that you were a hypocrite. As it sounds right now, I think I would feel like a hypocrite. 
Only when the moment comes, we won't feel this way. Reason being, the blood of Christ is completely sufficient to cover all our sins. And that's what this is really about. It's about demonstrating the sufficiency of Christ's work in sacrifice. We will be able to stand in judgment over angels, and the angels will be able to say nothing about our guilt. Why? Because Christ has conquered the grave. Because Christ was obedient in all things, which is demonstrated in our redemption and exaltation. You see, that's what this is really about. It's about demonstrating the greatness of Christ, the greatness of our Savior, not us. Point being, this is what's going to happen. God's people are going to stand in judgment over even the angels. And Paul's point here is to say, look, if this is what's going to happen at the end of the age... If you're going to stand in judgment over the world, then why in the world would you ever think it's okay to go to them and ask them to settle your disputes? It's an argument from greater to lesser, and it's one that's really going to play into our next two points. But the idea is to bring these kinds of matters before the civil authorities is to act contrary to the calling that we've received in Christ. In short, it undermines the gospel. It proclaims the opposite of what we say takes place in Jesus Christ. This is the first reason why the church should settle these matters internally. It's because we've been called to settle these types of issues. The second reason the church is called to settle these issues is found in verses 5 through 6, and that's because the church is competent to settle these issues. So the church isn't just called to settle these types of issues, they're competent to do it as well. Paul says, verses 5 and 6, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? I think if there's an objection to this notion of a church resolving civil disputes among their members, this is it. It's that the church is not competent to render justice in these disputes. After all, right, I mean, judges spend years studying law in law school. Uh, Then they have to prove their knowledge of the law by passing an exam that proves their competency after that. They often serve in a law practice of some sort for several years before they ever become a judge. Not only that, but there's also a set of professional standards that they have to adhere to or they'll lose their license to practice law. Basically, they're professionals, right? Why would I ever want to let my case be settled by a bunch of amateurs? I wouldn't go to my pastor and ask ask him to perform my next major operation. So why would I go to him and ask him to hear my case? Sounds like a fairly legitimate objection, does it not? And I tell you guys, I think this is a completely legitimate objection. At least at a certain level. We'll see in our next point why we should be willing to let our case be settled by amateurs if that's what it takes. But the truth is most churches probably are not competent to hear these matters. But you know what? What this passage says is that they should be. I mean, think about it. Not only do we have the Word of God, meaning not only do we have 
the final authority on what is right and just at our disposal, the, the divinely inspired legal text. But according to what Paul says in chapter 2, as Christians, we've also been gifted with the Holy Spirit who helps us understand the truths written in this book. And we talked about this uh, as recently as last week. Jesus says in Matthew 18, in the context of discussing a church tribunal, he says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And do you get that? We literally have the resurrected Christ, the one of whom it said in Isaiah 11, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. That man is in communion with us, the church. He's guiding them, directing them through the Holy Spirit. I mean, really, what more could we ask for? The church possesses everything necessary to be competent to try these cases. Again, really, the state should be coming to us and asking for our advice. Far from going to them and saying, will you settle this dispute for us? It actually should be the other way around. They should be coming to us and asking for our input because in Christ, we have a wisdom that far, far surpasses the wisdom of the world. Now, again, that doesn't mean that the church always is competent. We just need to recognize that when it's not, it's not because of any intrinsic deficiency in the design of the church. Rather, it's because of the church's failure to take advantage of the resources that God has made available to it. That's what you see here in verses 5 and 6. I mean, you can hear the disappointment and even the disgust in Paul's tone as he writes this. Again, he says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? He sees this, you know, either inability or unwillingness to, to handle these disputes as an abject failure in the church. They are competent to handle these cases, or at least they should be. And so again, to take these matters before unbelievers instead is to completely undermine the gospel. It goes contrary to everything we say about who we are and what we've received in Christ. We're telling the world that we have the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and that these things have not only been given to us by Christ, but they also point to Christ, that they point to His supremacy over all things. And then we say, oh, and by the way, can you settle this dispute for us because we don't know how? It completely undermines everything that we're proclaiming about the gospel. I tell you, if there's one thing that this passage should do, it's that it should challenge us as Christians to pause and really consider what kind of qualifications we should be looking for in our church leaders. Because what this passage is implying is that one major qualification should be that our church leaders are competent to oversee and mediate these types of disputes. That's sort of sobering to think about, isn't it? 
You think of what most Christians are looking for in their leaders today, and they want men who are great communicators, or they want innovators, they want visionaries. Basically, they're looking for these really dynamic leaders, men who can gather a crowd. And what a passage like this says is that actually what they should be looking for first and foremost is a judge. You may think I'm exaggerating, but, but really I'm not. Yes, 1 Timothy 3 does indicate that potential elders should be able to teach, and so teaching is clearly one component of the elder's job. But do you realize that biblically speaking, this doesn't actually appear to be their primary role or purpose in the church? I know that may sound strange given the emphasis that we seem to place on our leaders as shepherds and teachers today, but really teaching is not the primary responsibility of the elder. Their primary responsibility actually is to rule the church well. I know we've discussed this recently, but I'll mention it again. Never once in the New Testament do you see the office that we, were, that we call elder referred to as pastor. In Ephesians 4, Paul makes reference to pastors, teachers, but he does this with respect to various types of leaders in the church, not to a particular office. Uh, likewise, in 1 Peter 5, elders are told to shepherd or pastor the church. You see the same thing in Acts 20. Still, never once do you see them referred to as a shepherd or pastor. Instead, do you know the title that they receive that describes their function in the church? You guys remember that? Elder, remember, tends to describe their qualifications to lead. But what describes their role, what they do? Do you guys remember that? It's episkopos, bishop. And it's a term that means overseer. This is what elders are primarily. They are overseers, rulers in the body of Christ. In fact, you go to 1 Timothy 5, and what's notable is that as Paul talks about paying elders... He tells Timothy, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor at preaching and teaching. The preaching and teaching function is added on as an addendum. Those who labor in preaching and teaching are considered especially worthy of financial remuneration. And the implication is that not only are some men who don't labor at teaching still qualified to serve as elders, but some are even worthy of double honor. Basically, they're entitled to financial remuneration. Like the church might bring them on staff and pay them, not primarily to teach, but to rule. And if we're understanding 1 Corinthians 6 correctly, then I think we can understand why. <laughs> you don't want amateurs settling your grievances. You want men who are not only competent, men who are trained both mentally and spiritually to oversee these things, but you also want men who have the time to then hear these matters and spend time looking into them carefully. I mean, just like a secular judge gets training to serve in that capacity and then spends years developing his legal skill before being employed in that context, so also does the church need to identify and set aside those men who through years of experience, study, and perhaps even training have gained the wisdom in Christ to hear and settle these disputes. 
And just so you know, 1 Timothy 5 isn't the only passage that speaks to this point. You go to James 3. James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And then, of course, James goes on to speak about the dangers of the tongue. What's sometimes missed in this passage is that James says this in a letter that's mostly about settling disputes in the church and of the very same kind that we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians 6. Richer brother and poor brother are taking each other to court. In chapter 2, there appear to be these church tribunals that have been set up and the leaders are showing preference to the rich, saying, you sit here in the good place while they're telling the poor, you go sit over there. When James talks about the dangers of the tongue and how such a little fire can set a whole forest ablaze, he isn't just talking about the leader's teaching. He's talking about their judgments as teachers. Their biased judgments carry the potential to spark all kinds of conflict and division in the church. Are we starting to maybe get a different conception of the office of elder and what might make a man qualified for this office? I tell you, if you were to ask me why the church is incompetent to handle these matters today, in fact, if you were to ask me even why it seems so many church leaders seem incompetent to even handle doctrinal disputes, let alone interpersonal ones, I would say that this is at least partly the reason why. It's because the church is looking for entertainers who can tell a good story, not rulers who can render a good verdict. They think that the pastor's primary role is to teach or even to lead, meaning they think it's the pastor's job to build the church when in fact his primary job is to rule the church. I tend to think that if we really believed that it was our responsibility as Christians to submit ourselves to the church's judgment in matters like what we've described here this morning, then the church wouldn't be looking for men with the biggest personalities to serve as their leaders. Instead, they'd be looking for men who are sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, men who are not given to wine, which impairs judgment right, men who are not lovers of money, right, who might be inclined to render a biased verdict for financial gain, men who are not quarrelsome, not violent, but men who instead rule over the affairs that God has given them, things like their home, with all dignity. Basically, it would be the exact list that we find in 1 Timothy 3. And that just wouldn't be the minimum threshold that we're looking for in our leaders so as not to disqualify themselves from the position. I tend to think that's how we view that list today. We see it as, you know, this is the minimum threshold a guy has to meet to be a pastor. No, those would be characteristics that we actually prize in our leaders. And we would prize these characteristics because we understand that having these types of men in these positions is actually essential to the church maintaining the integrity of its witness to the world. And this leads us to the third reason why the church should settle these kinds of issues in-house. We find that reason in verses 7 and 8. And that's because the church is compelled to settle these issues. Again, the church is called, it is competent, and it is compelled to settle these disputes in-house. 
Paul says to have lawsuits with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Again, when the church takes its disputes before the states, when it voluntarily submits itself to the judgment of the world, it completely undermines the message that we have to share with the world. So you know what Paul says in this scenario? He says it's better to be wronged. This is what he means in verse 7 when he says to have lawsuits is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He's telling them even if you take your case to court and you win, guess what, Christian? You've still lost. Brothers and sisters, to understand why Paul is saying this here, you have to think according to God's priorities. You have to think according to what God considers to be important. And in God's economy, there are more important things than money, right? There are more important things than financial prosperity. This is Jesus' point in Matthew 6 when he talks about the flowers of the field and the birds of the air. He knows, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? The idea is that there are more important things in life than simply existing and prospering financially. It's partly for this reason that he says, with regard to our worry over these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's because there are some things in life that money can't buy, things that are more important than money, such as glorifying God, such as advancing His kingdom. I mean, winning a soul to Jesus Christ, that is more important than money, right? You can't put a price on someone's soul. Like Jesus said, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? You can't put a price on a human soul. If you understand this point, then you can understand what Paul means here. What good is it to take your brother to court and win your case if in the process you undermine the gospel message that we're trying to share with the world? Because that's what happens every time we submit one of our disputes before a civil magistrate and say, here, please settle this for us. We undermine the gospel. And we undermine the gospel not only because when we do this, we come off exactly like the world in our greed and our idolatry, but perhaps even more significantly because it proclaims to the world we are not competent to settle these issues ourselves. We are not wise enough to do it. What this means practically is that even if a church is not entirely competent to hear these matters, even if they are a bunch of amateurs that can't get it right, Paul would say it would be better to submit to their judgment anyways and suffer financial loss than to bring these matters before the world and suffer spiritual loss. The idea is that our concern for the gospel should so outweigh our concern for our own personal comfort such that we will gladly sacrifice that comfort in order to preserve the integrity of our witness to the world. Think about it. Jesus tells his disciples at the beginning, right? He says, you must take up your cross and die daily if you want to follow me. He says, you must lose your life if you hope to save it. If you try to save your life, he says, you're going to lose it. And he says all this in the context of asking the prospective disciple, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? I would imagine that we're all aware 
that there's a cost to following Jesus. If you call yourself a Christian, then I would imagine that you've already counted the cost and you realize that there are moments when in our service to Christ, we will suffer some kind of real personal loss. Well, Paul is indicating this morning's passage is that this could potentially be one of those instances. You may not think of the grievances that you have against your brother. You may think that those are just kind of an entirely separate issue, that they don't have anything to do with actually proclaiming the name of Christ. But what Paul has shown us this morning is that if that's what you think, then you're wrong. That grievance that you have against your brother, the one that's even serious enough to take him to court, he says the way you handle that will say volumes to the world about the gospel. And so you need to be prepared to settle in a way that honors Christ and even to the point of unjustly losing your case if necessary. I don't think that any of you would blink twice if I said in the context of religious persecution, you should be willing to suffer the seizure of your property and your witness to Christ. Right? I would expect that every one of you knows that if you were ever put in a situation where you had to deny Christ in order to keep your property, that God expects you not to deny Christ. That He expects you to lose your property in order to maintain your witness to the gospel. And I would expect that all of you would be willing to do that. Well, this is no different than that. The stakes are the same. It's only the the scenario that's changed. And so I think maybe the question I should close with this morning is, does the gospel mean that much to us? Does the gospel mean that much to us? And I use the word us here very intentionally. I could say you, but the reality is that this is a group effort. Even in the way Paul writes this passage, it's just like what we saw in chapter 5. It's the church that he's taking issue here, not just with the individuals who are suing each other. It's not just the individuals who need to be willing to be wronged. The church also needs to be willing to get involved in these disputes and hold these members accountable. Again, it takes time and energy and effort to be involved in these disputes. I can tell you guys from personal experience, it is not easy to sort out a real legitimate dispute, and most especially of the kind that Paul is talking about here. It takes a lot of listening a lot of study, a lot of reflection and discussion. Beyond this, it requires diligence in seeing that the right men are appointed to leadership positions in the church that would guide the church through this process. Depending on the size of the church and the frequency of these kinds of disputes, it could even require money to fund an especially competent individual to give attention to these matters. The question that we need to ask ourselves as a body is, does the gospel really mean this much to us? I mean, Paul has shown us the logic in settling these matters internally. Yes, it is a strange idea culturally, but what he says makes sense, does it not? And it especially makes sense if the church does what it takes to become competent in this area. Are we prepared to take those steps? Is the gospel that important to us? That's the question we need to be asking ourselves this morning. With that in mind, 
Let's close by praying that God would grant us the grace to so value the integrity and clarity of the gospel that we would rise to meet this challenge. Let's pray.